How we doing? How we doing? All right. So glad that you're here. Uh, you probably have already seen me there on the screen, but my name is Jason Hatch, and I get the distinct honor and privilege to be the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And uh, for those of you who are brand new, I've already met a couple of you this morning. If this is your first time at Redeemer, first of all, you're probably thinking, uh, what a bad Sunday to come for the first time. Uh, they're talking about changes uh, in building and money, but uh, we truly do hope that you're blessed this morning. And uh, it, we would love to connect with you. And so if that's you, Maybe it's your first Sunday, or perhaps you've been around uh, a few weeks or a few months. If you have not let us know that you're here, uh, please do that. You can text CONNECT to the number on the screen, uh, or swing by the tent on your way out. Let the Connections team know uh, that you're new. We just want to know who you are, want to answer any questions that you might have, uh, and find out if there's any place that we can serve you uh, or connect you to something in the life of Redeemer. All right, as you just heard, and hopefully this is not new to you. If you're new to Redeemer, then maybe this is, but... Uh, we've been talking about this for almost a year now, uh, that we have been praying for uh, a few years that God would provide uh, an opportunity for us to uh, build a permanent place. And uh, in December, we purchased some land. Uh, and I personally, as, uh, as many of you have shared this same uh, excitement, I'm so excited about the location of the property that we bought. Uh, it is just west of Hogan Park, inside the loop, uh, right off of La Mesa, north of Wadley. I think that is an underserved area of our city, and there's obviously a a lot of growth going up north on Big Spring. Uh, and uh, so we purchased this in December. Uh, the last many months, there's been so many different people from Redeemer involved in the process of design. And so I'm super excited. And I know that at least Covenant Partners, you already know this. Uh, we finished the design phase of the building about two weeks ago uh, and turned the builders loose. And uh, actually, I've been getting some pictures from a few of you the last few days, because if you have driven up La Mesa, you found out that they have broken ground, all right? This is exciting. This is what it looks like. Uh, I'm going to be out there tomorrow uh, trying to convince me, uh, trying to convince them to let me hop on one of those, I don't know, D5, D6 caterpillars. And uh, so pray for that. Put that on your list. Uh, this is a, a new season for us. Obviously, it's a new building. We've been portable for seven and a half, almost eight years, and so this is a, a shift for us. But uh, as we talk about new season, new building, it's the exact same mission. Uh, nothing is going to change with what we are trying to accomplish. A building is very simply a tool uh, for the church to use uh, to advance the mission of Jesus, and so we're super excited about that. Uh, we did want to show you, if you were at our worship uh, and vision night a few weeks ago, then you already saw this. But this is a rendering of what it will uh, look like there on the property, looking out towards um, downtown, uh, that building that I believe uh, it's gray, but I'm colorblind, so everything is gray to me. Uh, that is the, the youth building that just got finished this week, so our youth ministry will begin meeting there um, next Sunday, I believe, Corey said. Uh, and so just really excited about this season, uh, and I, I will say this, that uh, I really haven't doubted my calling to be in Midland, to uh, plant Redeemer, to give our lives for um, the sake of the gospel in Midland until this week. I'm, I've never been more excited about what's going on, uh, people loving Jesus, reading their Bible, sharing the gospel, living in community. Um, but this week, my alma mater, DBU, posted a job posting. They're looking for a head coach of their bass fishing team. <laughs> and I saw that, and I had like an existential crisis wrestling through that. But the Lord has been good, and so here we are. I'm here to stay. Uh, I will just uh, fish when I can. 
Uh, as we walk into this season, we really do believe that it's going to take uh, all of us uh, to be involved in this, and we want 100% engagement of people that would call this church um, their home. And again, we're going to tease this out a little bit the next few weeks, but we're not going to be calling uh, each one of us, uh, hatches included, uh, to give to a building. We really do want to give to a vision and a ministry of what Jesus is doing uh, to reach people and change lives in our city. Um, so that brings us to this uh, first to the Lord season that we are uh, walking into today. So today's October. Uh, we did it. That may mean nothing. It might be 100 degrees tomorrow, but it is October. Uh, and the month of October, we're setting aside, and you'll see in a moment from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, uh, that's what we're going to be expositing, uh, expository preaching our way through those two chapters, uh, quite honestly, because... Those two chapters are, are some of the most potent, uh, just like good theology around a Jesus-centered, generous heart, okay? So that's where we are going for the month of uh, October, and I truly do think this, or I wouldn't say it, uh, I think you're probably going to be encouraged and maybe even surprised uh, at the way that you're encouraged on your spiritual journey. Um, so the last thing that we would want this to be is just simply a financial campaign. I think that would be a huge miss. And so what this is, is this is, is it's a discipleship journey uh, for us to learn to engage uh, the Lord and for that to get all the way into every little corner of our lives and our hearts down even to our uh, finances. And so you just got a copy of uh, a, a, a big book, okay? Did you get one? Okay, uh, we've been working incredibly hard on this for the last many weeks. First of all, shout out to Katie Hathaway. There she is. Raise your hand. Oh, goodness. The amount of blood, sweat, and tears that she has put into this is incredible, and thank you. Thank you for your, uh, your work on this. Uh, so I want to uh, show you a few things for this book because this hopefully is your companion for the next five Sundays both here and for those of you uh, that are in community groups, in your community group as well. Uh, first thing, and you don't have to peruse it right now, uh, but as you have some time today, you're going to look through here and find out there's just a little bit of a history and a timeline. Uh, so for those of you who have not been around for seven and a half years, we want you to understand just what the Lord has done and his faithfulness to us. Uh, so there's some timeline and history and changes of location and services and all of that. Uh, and then also we got some vision in here where we share what we believe that God is calling us into uh, in regards to uh, gospel-centered missional family and how this uh, will help us in that regard. Uh, and then also for those of you who are note takers, there's some blank pages for each Sunday uh, where you can walk through and take some notes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. So bring this back with you next week. Uh, and then there are are some discussion questions. Uh, rarely am I this far ahead, but uh, we have gotten ahead of the game, and so even uh, discussion questions for community group time are in there uh, for you to have. And then I believe, uh, was there a commitment card in the book? Okay, you should have a commitment card uh, in the book, and this is what I would ask of you. Uh, because there's two different moments coming up in the month of October uh, where we want to invite our people to have uh, underst understood, hopefully you understand what we're doing and why, and have had plenty of time to ask questions, and more than that, plenty of time uh, to pray and to engage with the Lord on this. So the evening uh, of October 15th, we'll have a pre-commitment service uh, on site, on the property, uh, and then on Sunday morning, the 29th, we'll also have a time. But what I would just really invite you 
you to do uh, with that card is to just put it someplace where it's going to catch your attention this week uh, and just pray and to begin to engage with the Lord. Uh, and then uh, we will explain more as we um, progress. That sound good? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't pass it up. Does that sound good? Okay, you know that I need, a, I need a little help as we go. All right, let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and as you do, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Father, we, we love you. Gosh, I'm, I'm incredibly humbled and grateful to be a part of what you're doing uh, in this church with these people and in this city. God, we recognize that there is um, incredible need uh, in our city, even in our own hearts. So I pray that uh, this journey, uh, that you would truly remind us again or perhaps teach us for the first time uh, what it truly looks like to give ourselves first to the Lord, uh, where you get the first place in our hearts, you get the first place in our minds, uh, and everything else in our lives would flow from that. So I pray that you would help me this morning as we open up your word uh, to exalt Christ, and I pray that we would be served by him uh, for his great name. And all of God's people said... Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 1 is where we will pick up. And you know, we're dropping right in the middle uh, of a book, so I do want to do some uh, background work to make you uh, aware of what's going on if you are new to this book. And I know so many of you are. You're new to uh, church, you're new to the Bible, you're new to Bible study. So there was a, a Jewish man named Saul, uh, and when Jesus uh, met him, Saul was a persecutor of the church trying to snuff out uh, this Jesus movement after the resurrection, uh, and Jesus meets him in a really crazy story, uh, and Saul has this conversion where he goes from persecuting Christians uh, to being a Christian and a pastor and a church planter, uh, and what, be, what really would become what a lot of people would call the apostle of grace, right? So grace would just be his thing. He beats the drum of grace uh, over and over because he had experienced grace, this free gift that he did not deserve, had not earned. And so uh, although he was a Jewish man, uh, his ministry would be predominantly to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. Uh, but he would hold in his heart uh, a special love for his own people, although he did not have many opportunities to physically uh, serve them and do ministry with them. Um, so he would uh, go all around the Roman Empire planting churches and sharing the gospel uh, among uh, a lot of non-Jewish people. Uh, and as he was doing that, he had planted a lot of churches. One of those was Corinth and in the middle of his journey planting churches, this uh, horrible, horrible famine uh, hits Judea, which is the place where most of the Jews lived. And uh, massive food shortages, uh, and there was just this unbelievable need and poverty among the Jewish people in Judea. Uh, and it's almost like something clicked in Paul's mind where he thought, what an incredible gospel opportunity. And so uh, he was doing this ministry with the Gentiles, but loved the Jews, and this need came up. And so basically what you see Paul doing uh, is he sees an opportunity to do a handful of things. Number one, he sees an opportunity to very practically help serve his kinsmen, his brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, in a very uh, in, in incredible time of physical need. Uh, option two, uh, he saw an opportunity to create some gospel unity. Okay, there was still cultural 
culturally a big, big gap between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so Paul thought, you know, if we can cooperate and if I can get these Gentile Christians to help serve their Jewish brothers and sisters, what an incredible moment of gospel unity that could be. A lot of examples that we could uh, kind of tease out in our culture, but uh, you know, if you think about not too many years ago, uh, before and maybe during the civil rights movement, uh, there was just a big, a big chasm between maybe a white church and a black church. And so the Apostle Paul might say, what an incredible opportunity to show that we are uh, equal, that we are uh, under the same banner. Very similar thing was going on because the Gentiles and the Jews were cultural uh, rivals and enemies. And so Paul saw an opportunity to serve needs of Jewish people, and he saw an opportunity to show that Christians are all one, that we're united. Uh, And then he also saw an opportunity uh, as a discipleship Uh, and a teaching opportunity for the Gentile churches, uh, particularly as it regards to giving themselves first to the Lord uh, and for really the grace of God to infiltrate every area uh, of the lives of these Gentiles. And, And so you could imagine, like if Paul is successful with this, what turns into a fundraising campaign, then you have um, like, like Jewish Christians that would be so encouraged that they're being loved and served by Gentile brothers and probably Jewish non-Christians that would be incredibly caught off guard, like what in the world happened? Something happened to change the hearts of those Gentile people for them to be uh, loving us and serving us in this way. And so what Paul does is he basically goes on this coordinated fundraising effort uh, to raise money among Gentile churches uh, and to send it back to accomplish all three of those things, to serve his people, to build some gospel unity, and as a teaching and a discipleship opportunity even for the givers. Uh, And so what you find out is that uh, when he begins this journey to raise money, uh, one of the first places where he lands is Corinth. And Paul had planted this church, okay? On one of Paul's journeys, he planted a gospel church in Corinth, and then he goes back there, and they're one of the first people, uh, one of the first churches that jump on board and say, this sounds awesome, Paul, Uh, we're in, and they turned in their commitment card, right, as it were. They made a commitment financially to this uh, this project uh, that, that, that Paul had. Um, but then, uh, and, and he mentions this, I'm going to back up one book. You, you can look on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, so when Paul writes the first letter to the church in Corinth, which we call 1 Corinthians, uh, he mentions their commitment uh, in the end of this book, and I'll read it to you. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, uh, he's referencing back to his previous visit where he talked about the opportunity they committed. He said, now concerning this, uh, the collection for the saints, the Jewish saints in Judea, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, uh, which for them was payday. Right? They, they would normally get paid once a week on the first day. And so Paul even talks about the timing of that being very important. He says, on the first day of every week, uh, each one of you, okay? I mean, you could say very easily, Paul was like, he was after 100% engagement. He says, it's important that every one of you are involved in this. Uh, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside some, something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. 
Okay? They had already committed to this, uh, and, uh, and they were somewhat reluctant. So Paul's going to give them some instructions. Basically, he's going to say, you need to make a plan to execute on your commitment. Uh, he's going to talk about the first fruits or the first day or as you get something stored aside. Uh, because what he's trying to avoid uh, is what can very easily happen to all of us. Uh, we make a commitment, and then before we fulfill the commitment, uh, other things kind of pop up. And so what he is doing is he's trying to avoid, and he'll say it here in a moment, uh, a last minute where he shows up to then uh, take what they were giving and deliver it where there was nothing because uh, they hadn't held their commitments. Verse 3, it says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. He's like, just do that, store up as God blesses you, set aside a portion uh, to bless others. And when I show up, choose some faithful people, give it to them, and I'll send them. And it was important for Paul um, that this gift be delivered by the, the Corinthian people to the church in Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And I will visit you after passing, this is important, through Macedonia. Okay, so Paul's plan was to physically go visit Corinth, and uh, he said, I want to do that via Macedonia, which was a whole other area uh, where he had planted some churches. Uh, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And then Paul, guess what? Uh, passes through Macedonia. Okay, he goes through there. And there were a couple different churches in Macedonia. You know them. Uh, Philippi, Thessalonica. Those are cities in Macedonia where Paul had planted churches. Uh, and, uh, and as he goes through this poor area of Macedonia, uh, some really unbelievable things uh, happen to the people and the hearts of those churches. Uh, and then before he heads back to Corinth, uh, what he does is that he sends Titus ahead of him uh, to get a report from the church, not just on this, but on a lot of things. Because if you know the church in Corinth, uh, it was a dumpster fire. All right, There was just so many brand new people walking out of paganism, committed to Jesus, but just like uh, at square one where there was just a lot of sin, a lot of brokenness. Uh, and like, as a side note, that's important to know that anytime new people hear the gospel and show up, it's going to be messy, right? And praise the Lord that he allows for our mess. Uh, and uh, that's like why we have most of the New Testament, uh, because the early churches had people coming to faith and it was a mess. And so Paul's writing to put things in order. So he sends Titus uh, to Corinth. Uh, Titus sends back a little bit of a report on a lot of things. Uh, some things are very colorful. Uh, and one day when we get into preaching all the way through First and Second Corinthians, um, it will be fun. If you've read it, you know what I'm saying. But the report Titus sends back is that uh, the, the Corinthian Christians were getting a little bit of cold feet on honoring their commitment. Uh, and so that is what necessitates Paul writing what we call 2 Corinthians. And he's, he's fixing a lot of things. Uh, he's fixing a lot of things about their theology, about their worship. Uh, but uh, in chapters 8 and 9, he does uh, take a moment to, to teach them and to disciple them, even down to their finances. Because I think, you know, like they had made uh, certain commitments, but then over time, some other options had popped up. You know, there was a beach house uh, in Corinth that came up for sale. Uh, you know, the new chariot was out. They had the iChariot 15. And so, like, you know, that would be super awesome, too. 
So they were just getting cold feet uh, and following through with what they had already committed to do. And so all that is the background uh, to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul writes them, um, and, and he says this. If you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, say ready. Okay, okay, so Paul's writing to Corinth, Christians, church in Corinth, and he says this, we, you know, him and his, his, his co-laborers, we want you, Christians in Corinth, to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's where he starts. Okay, and we're going to spend a fair bit of time in a moment uh, teasing out just what exactly that means because that is going to be uh, a foundational word uh, and idea for the rest of his, his teaching in chapters 8 and 9. Just the grace of God, unmerited, unearned favor where God does something. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay? Remember, he told Corinth, I, I, I'm coming there, but I'm coming via Macedonia. And then when he gets there, some just unbelievable things happen. And now he takes that as an example and a teaching moment for the Christians in Corinth. For in a severe test of affliction, okay, when Paul says severe test of affliction, you know that that's serious, right? Because Paul had endured some unbelievable things that you or I will just probably never experience. And so when Paul uses such dramatic language like severe test of affliction, it was incredibly bad for the churches and the Christians in Macedonia. Uh, they're abundant in the midst of this severe test of affliction, which you, you pick up a little of it if you read through uh, Philippians, that they were being persecuted for their faith. He says, in the midst of that, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they, they've collided and they produced something that caught Paul off guard, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This project that Paul had to send money and relieve some suffering in Judea. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So that's why we are calling this next uh, few weeks of preaching series first to the Lord because this is the, like the genesis moment uh, for those Christians to some unbelievable change in their life um, that included some joy. Right? They had something that other Christians didn't have and you can trace it back to them giving themselves first to the Lord. Uh, so I, I want to explain a little bit about the differences between uh, Corinth and the churches in Macedonia and I thought I would call it a tale of two cities but I, I it turns out that that is taken, uh, so we'll call it a tale of two churches, okay? Uh, these two churches, uh, the church in Corinth and the churches in Macedonia, were very, very different. Um, the, the church in Corinth, Corinth was a very strategic location. Uh, Paul planted the church there on purpose um, because it was a port city where people from all over the Roman Empire would travel through. So if you're trying to get the gospel to spread to all the world, that's a strategic place. Uh, but it was also a very young city. Uh, it was a very uh, economically, it was a thriving city. Um, 
It was fairly comfortable. There was not much persecution for the Christians there. Uh, there were a lot of folks that were moving there. You know, they had graduated from Macedonia Tech and looking for a job and wound up uh, where all the jobs are there in uh, Corinth. Um, and, and you could see how that could turn into some of the problems in the church in Corinth that basically had a bunch of crazy college kids coming to faith, trying to learn how to follow Jesus. So that's kind of the picture of the church in Corinth. Uh, young, wealthy, not super persecuted, uh, and I, you know, I, I think there's incredible correlations uh, between that and Midland, but I didn't want to share that with you because then you would think I just made that up. Uh, so instead, uh, I want to quote to you, uh, Hunter Beaumont is a, a brother uh, and a pastor at a, a sister church in Denver, uh, and he has no connections to Midland, uh, and he was just trying to write what he saw about Corinth, and he said this, Corinth was a boom town. And it was sparkling, a new city. There weren't likely many multi-generation families in Corinth. No one grew up in Corinth. No one was from there. Everyone moved there to make money. It was very young and very wealthy. Okay? There's a lot of overlap. Now, I get that we don't have a port, right? That would be nice. Uh, I don't know how much a bond would be for us to get our own port, but uh, I'm all for that. So, like, that's, that's Corinth, okay? And, and then you've got Macedonia, and it's a very, very different setting, very different culture. Um, this would have been somewhat of like the breadbasket where there was a lot of uh, agrarian things, a lot of farming going on. Uh, it was a very poor, uh, very blue-collar area where there was a lot of persecution towards Christians. And yet, even though they're, they're so very different, uh, Paul basically is going to say that the Christians in Macedonia were, were wealthy in one area that the Corinthians were not. Actually, two. Joy and generosity. Right? That's why he holds Macedonia up uh, as an example. And, and so uh, Paul's goals as he is holding up the, the Macedonian churches. As an example, what he's trying to accomplish is a couple things. Uh, he wants that to be contagious. Uh, he wants their, their joy and their faith and their generosity to kind of inspire and encourage the Corinthians to live their life that way. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, number two, uh, is he was really hoping that the churches and the Christians in Corinth uh, would experience a, a couple things that it seems like the Macedonians had experienced, and they had not experienced. One was uh, that, that word grace. Like, they had experienced grace uh, in a very, very powerful and fresh way, and he wanted them to experience that. Uh, he wanted them to experience joy uh, in a very deep way that seems like it was missing, and then obviously he wanted them to experience um, the joy of, uh, of generosity in a way that the Macedonians had figured out. So the Macedonians, though they didn't have much money, were persecuted, uh, they, they, they were filled up with an unbelievable amount of joy and generosity. Uh, and then the third thing uh, I, I believe that Paul was trying to accomplish is that ultimately uh, he wanted God to capture the entire heart, every little corner of the Christians in Corinth. Because what you find out, and I'm going to steal from next week's sermon, is that the, the, the Christians in Corinth they had grown in so many areas and had so many parts of the Christian life that were commendable. Okay, let me read it to you. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to keep going, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 6 and 7. Paul says, Accordingly, we urged Titus 
that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace also. He's talking about giving as an act of grace. He says, but as you excel in everything, and then he lists off things that the church had done well, okay? Uh, as you excel in everything in faith. So the church in Corinth, they, they had understood and had, had, had grasped like living faithfully, trusting God, that faith, what an unbelievable thing to excel in. In speech, it's like you guys are, are you're, you're growing, you're nailing it in the way that you talk to one another. Your, 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 your speech is honorable, uh, it's, it's honest. I'm so excited. Your faith, your speech, uh, in knowledge that they're understanding the gospel and how it works and sin and how it works and uh, understanding how to, how to work through the scriptures on their own. And in all earnestness and in our love for you, but see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, Paul's looking at a church that he planted and he loves, and he's like, man, they are making so much progress in their journey of discipleship, but the one piece missing is their finances, okay? And um, you know this, Jesus talks about money a lot because he says it is tethered to your heart, and it's like incredibly honest, right? Your, your, your wallet, your bank account, your, your credit card, your debit card, like th those things are brutally honest in where our love and where our heart actually is. Uh, and unless uh, God has infiltrated everything down, even to how we view money, he hasn't really kind of taken over. Okay, um, the, the Spurgeon, uh, I believe, I think it was Spurgeon, actually could have been Luther. Um, but he, he mentioned that uh, for a Christian to be like fully engaged in this walk with Jesus, three different things have to be converted. Uh, their, their mind has to be converted, like it changed. That's what obviously converted means. Like our mind has to be changed where now we have a different worldview. We think differently than we did before we were Christians. It's like your mind has to be converted. It says your heart has to be converted. You love different things. This is why some of you, when you came to faith, you're like, I don't know what happened. Uh, I used to love these sins, and now I don't. I love different things. It's because your heart's been changed. Your heart's been converted. He said everyone had to be like thoroughly converted, you have to go through a conversion of the mind, conversion of the heart, and a conversion of the wallet. Uh, he said purse, um, but I uh, translated that to be more conducive to the West Texas setting, right? He's like, unless all three of those things are engaged, uh, like holding off a compartment of your heart that Jesus doesn't have access to. And so that's what Paul is seeing. He's like, ah, they're making so much progress, but we need to really dig in here because where the treasure is, there will the heart be also. And I don't know about conversion, but um, a true disciple is not really a true disciple of Jesus until that gets down even to affect the way that we see and view money. All right. Our money is just really honest. Uh, there's a couple, a couple things that are just brutally honest in life. I was made well aware of this last week, like the bathroom scale. Like it's just brutally honest, right? It just doesn't care about your feelings. And so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm eating pretty healthy, not exercising a ton. But I kind of had this mentality that I was still in the same place that I was in my 30s and my 20s. And I had this kind of feeling about where I was until I got on the scale. I was like, dang it. it it's just telling the truth. So, like, that's what, that's what money does. It tells what we actually love. Consider this. Really, I'm going to put this in front of you and, and invite you uh, to consider this over the next few days. The poorer church 
that had less money, less affluence, uh, more persecution, they learned generosity much quicker than the rich church. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, and that is still very true today. I read this statistic. I mean, you, you know this. The Bible lays out that Christians should set aside consistently 10% of our income to give away towards uh, need, towards uh, ministry. Uh, and uh, the average, I honestly can't remember if it was uh, Christian or just American. I think it probably from what I've read, it applies to both. Um, that, that makes less than $100,000 a year, generally gives about 4% of that away. And in our country, if you make more than $100,000 a year, it's about 1%. That as kind of money goes up, generosity goes down. And, and like on the surface, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But it, it kind of does if you understand how money and the human heart work. Right? I think money and possessions are oftentimes like, uh, like, like some kind of substance, like a drug or an alcohol, where you think, oh, if I get a little more, I'm going to be satisfied. And the opposite thing tends to happen, right? Uh, with substances, you get a little more, like you actually need more. And it doesn't produce um, fulfillment. It doesn't produce gratitude. Money can be the same way if we look at it incorrectly. If we look at it as a means to be uh, secure, as a means to have uh, identity, as a means to show that we're worth something or whatever it might be, then like Solomon was right when he said, if you love money, you're never going to have enough. And so it's just really interesting to me that the poor church learned generosity much quicker than those who had affluence and wealth. Uh, and, uh, and, and so Paul lays this in front of them. His example, as we, uh, as we look through those first few verses of chapter 8, Paul holds up that, the, the churches in Macedonia as an example. And I want to I work through this for a few minutes. And, and where he starts with is he starts by mentioning grace, right? Before he even talks about what happened in their hearts, he talks about this grace that they had experienced, uh, which th that's where the title for this sermon comes from, the grace before their gift. Uh, grace in Greek is charis, uh, and it's obviously a very dominant theme in the Bible, uh, but it's also an incredibly dominant theme in these two chapters because everything Paul is talking about is like driven by grace. So that's where he starts. And, and grace, it's, it's a free gift where God does something, right? It's not that we do something, it's that God moves and God does something. And um, there, there's kind of two different applications uh, for how grace works itself out in our lives and in this passage. Number one, it's just like when we talk about grace being the way someone becomes a Christian, Okay, the way that someone is converted, the beginning point for everyone, you cannot, impossible, it is impossible to become a Christian unless you are saved by grace. Either it's something that God gives for free, or we don't get it because we can't earn it, we can't afford it. And so, you know, Romans 3 would talk about this, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by, what, grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. So one, um, one application of grace is like the, the transfer that has to take place for somebody to become a Christian. 
We confess our sins. Jesus gives us grace. We receive grace. Christianity is the only religion where your identity is received, not achieved. Okay? It's received by grace. Okay? In one moment of conversion. But, like, praise God, grace doesn't end that day, right? You get saved on a Monday. Guess how God treats you on a Tuesday? By grace. Like, he, he just kind of continues to uh, treat us uh, in a way that we don't deserve. And, and so, sometimes when we talk about grace, it's the moment of salvation. And sometimes, it's just this special move of God's grace in our hearts that's not connected to conversion. And that's what took place with Macedonia. Something incredible happened where they, uh, for a new, a new moment, received this fresh, I don't know if it was a revelation or a feeling, experience of God's grace. And it changed them very, very deeply. Uh, I, I remember, you've heard so many stories over the years of my grandfather. Um, but he was a bivocational uh, pastor. He had a full-time job uh, where he and my father owned a prosthetic business for uh, 35 years. But then he also pastored churches on the side. Uh, did that for about 55 years. Uh, one of just, one of my heroes. Uh, I don't like... If, 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 like, you would never question that he legitimately was a disciple and loved Jesus. And I remember, um, goodness, this would have been 30 years ago, uh, when I was a teenager, um, I remember I spent a lot of time with my grandfather working on his ranch, traveling with him on mission trips. And I remember him telling, he was in his early 70s, uh, he said, I don't know what happened, Jason, but there was just this, this, like, like, inner revival going on in my heart and like this new fresh grace and it wasn't like oh grandpa wasn't a christian this whole time and now he is that, that's it's a different category it's like this special move where he just he felt and was impressed by the grace of god that's what happened to the macedonians they had walked through the door of christianity so to speak by grace and then over and over and over just experienced this grace that god had for them um who gets grace okay i think this is an interesting point um and maybe this answers the question as to why the macedonians learn generosity before the Corinthians because there seems to be some connection between grace like truly re receiving and feeling grace and that changing you to your core is because generally the, the Macedonians had a, a very intense I would assume uh, feel of being needy and empty and living in want and so what a prime candidate for grace when you know you need something and you can't do it I think sometimes when we have enough money to uh, fix most of our problems that we kind of f like we forget that we need grace. And so maybe that is, is, is why. But like they didn't bring much to the table other than poverty and affliction. And then God throws in the mix grace and joy and it just it changes them. So God's grace, uh, it always has an effect, right? Theological terms, we call this effectual, that God's uh, grace is effectual. It always affects and changes things. Paul, right? Why was Paul so deeply changed? Because he experienced God's grace. I mean, he say, listen, I am the foremost of sinners and God chose me to be an apostle. I didn't earn this. This was him, not me. Grace changed him. Y'all remember the story of Zacchaeus? Why did he start giving back all this money? Because the grace of Jesus had deeply, deeply changed him. Why was Macedonia so deeply moved and have such joy and generosity? Because they were responding to God's grace. 
Uh, I, I want to do some math. This is like spiritual math for you, for you, uh, you engineers in the room. Maybe you'll get excited about this. Uh, you can create a, a spreadsheet later on if you want. Uh, this, like, here's the equation. All right, here's what the Macedonians brought to the equation, brought to the table: uh, severe affliction and extreme poverty. <laughs> That's what they had. Okay, okay, I'm here. I bring my severe affliction and my extreme poverty. That's their contribution. To the equation, what does God add to it? He adds to it grace and joy, okay? What does that produce? It said it overwhelmed them and overflowed out of them this sense of generosity. So a couple principles about, like really, like Christians should be, and I'm not talking financially, uh, that's a portion of it, just like we should be the most generous people with our time, with our homes, with our money, with everything, because one, we believe God's generous. Two, we've been absolutely changed, and that's how you respond to grace, is you get joy and you become generous. Um, a couple things to note, uh, that generosity, obviously, it's, it's a heart thing, not a financial thing. Okay, remember the equation? They brought severe affliction, extreme poverty. God did not give them money. Did y'all catch that? Like it's not more money that made them generous. It was this grace that changed their heart where they became joyful, that generosity, it's not a money thing. It truly is a heart thing. And we say that all the time, but I think inviting the Holy Spirit to shove that really deep down in our hearts is incredibly important. Uh, And that generosity is just a result of grace uh, and joy. Uh, it does, Paul doesn't even mention how much uh, the Macedonians gave, probably because it would not have been impressive financially. But he was overwhelmed at how the grace of God gave them joy, and it changed them to their core. Um, three, I want to look at the result of grace. Okay, because there's a, there's a difference between uh, just being generous to try to earn something or being generous because we're driven by grace. It says they gave beyond their means. And, and, and that generally is a result of grace. It, like the generosity is a reaction to something. Right? There's a whole corner of theology that unfortunately is fairly rampant in our culture. Uh, a lot of it fits underneath the prosperity gospel title where it would say, listen, uh, you be generous so that you can get stuff. You give so that you can get. That's garbage, right? No. Why are we generous? Because God in Christ has given us absolutely everything. It's a response out of like this thing that God has already done in our hearts. That's what it was for them. They weren't trying to earn anything. We got everything. We have everything in Christ, and we want to be like him. It says that they were begging earnestly to be able to take part in in relieving some of the suffering of the saints. And this, again, this was not because they had a lot of disposable income. Uh, It's because God had, had deeply changed them. You can see, if you look through this text... The Macedonian church, their joy was not connected to their possessions or their net worth. What happens if it is? Okay, if our joy or our identity or our meaning is connected to our things, we cannot let them go. 
We cannot get rid of them because we need them for our joy. But if your joy is connected with Jesus in extreme suffering and affliction and poverty, you can still have joy. Like if your joy is connected to Jesus, things can come and go and you kind of get off the roller coaster. Um, I, I thought about this and I think it's worth, worth sharing because Paul takes this uh, example of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians. Uh, I want to take a different example and, and use that hopefully to encourage us. Uh, a church that many of you have been uh, involved with and supportive of for many years uh, is a church called Omni. Uh, and Omni Fellowship uh, is uh, a, a dear brother, uh, Va- Pastor Valentine. He's been here and preached multiple times. Uh, they planted about seven years ago, and we have uh, been behind them and helped support them financially. Uh, and, and you know this, that uh, elders and I, we've talked through this, and in a season where we're trying to build a building and raise money, we think it's incredibly important um, that we keep our posture outward focused. Right, that we keep giving and we keep trying to support other people. And so um, uh, Valentine called me not long ago and said, we have, like, they're in a very, very poor area in South Dallas. Uh, a lot of very low income, a lot of single parents, um, but God's doing an unbelievable work in them. Their church is growing and they had an opportunity to buy the land adjacent to their building so they can expand ministry. Uh, and I was so deeply moved and encouraged by them uh, as uh, as you, Redeemer, we got to give, but to hear the stories of how their people have been so deeply changed, and they're so excited about what God's doing. Uh, there was four different families that he was telling me about, uh, that four went, four went, four goed. They did not, they, they just canceled vacation plans for the year because they wanted to uh, be involved in what God was doing. And I think that's a very similar thing to what uh, Paul is doing with the Macedonians and the Corinthians, just to hear of like someone that the grace of God has changed them down to a sacrificial and a generous heart. So uh, what does this mean for us this season? Here's what I, I want to invite you to do. It's very simple. Give yourself first to the Lord. What does that mean? It means that we seek him first, we uh, find our identity in him, we look for joy and grace from him, like to really seek the Lord first, to put him first, uh, and I think to the extent we do that, everything else in the church just will seem to take care of itself. Unity takes care of itself, us living on mission takes care of itself, uh, forgiving one another takes care of itself, all of that takes care of itself uh, if we give ourselves first to the Lord. And I really hope you and I experienced uh, just a very strong, unique, new maybe sense uh, of God's grace, uh, and I pray that it gets down to, to really change, uh, change us, to give us a sacrificial generosity and joy. Over the next few weeks, I pray that God stirs us up, changes us, puts our eyes uh, on Jesus where it needs to be. Uh, A couple things that will be coming up. I mentioned them earlier in the service, Uh, but uh, on the evening of Sunday, October 5th, uh, we will be having, like we're calling it a pre-commitment service uh, and a faith um, or ground dedication service where we're going to meet on site, and I hope that you've had some time to think through and to pray through by then uh, that if you want to be involved in this. Like, I think it's just, it's a biblical principle that Christians should give 10%. Uh, and this is what, there's so many good things, so many huge needs and good ministries to give to. I would just pray that you would consider this, uh, this worthy of investing in. 
so if you are ready, we'll invite you to come that night. We'll have some time, very special service, uh, where we will get to pray over the ground and for all that we hope uh, and believe God to do uh, through that as a tool in the next many, many generations. Uh, and then we'll have some time uh, on Sunday, uh, four weeks from now on the 29th, uh, to do a very similar thing, to bring some commitments to the Lord. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, the reason we want to do this series again and I'm done, is because we don't want this to just be a fundraising thing. We want this, just as Paul did for Corinth, uh, to be a discipleship process where we get to grow in faith, grow in joy, really feel and understand God's grace, and for him to use us to bless others. So that's where we're going. Let me invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray together. Father, you are good. You're so full of grace. When people met Jesus, they were overwhelmed that he was full of both grace and truth. And God, I just pray that you'd give us each a moment to just recognize how good you have been to us, how gracious you have been, that what we have, we have not earned, but you're a good God who gives good things. For God so loved the world that he gave. So God, I just pray that you would help us in these next few moments. God, even as we... Um, as we take communion, that would, you would help us to, to see and to remember and to feel a deep sense of your grace. And I pray that it would have a deep effect on every corner of our lives. God, as we stand and we sing, I pray that you're honored and worshiped and glorified through our words, through our minds, through our hearts. And we want nothing more than Christ to be elevated and exalted through Redeemer. So I pray that you would truly uh, guide us and guard us in this next season, that it would truly be about you uh, and it would be about your glory and disciples being made in Midland, Texas. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray this, Jesus, through your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.